a few things up around the place this week, and then with the service every day, it uh, kind of gets to you. Maybe it's just my age. <laughs> didn't used to get this tired, it didn't seem like. But anyway, had a, I think, a very good time uh, here keeping the Days of Unleavened Bread. I hope it's meaningful to us all. Let's go back to First Peter again this evening. We finished up chapter 2 last night and are beginning chapter 3 now. Uh, he tells us that we're to be patient and take suffering and take abuse and take railing against ourselves and, and uh, evil things said about us with patience and not to, to answer back, but to be patient with it as Christ was, and how we were sheep going astray, but we've been returned to Him, and we're supposed to act like Him and react like Him, not carnally, not as humans do, but as He did. And uh, He carries that thought then into chapter 3. Here again, it has to do with the right kind of relationships, uh, how we respond one to another, he gets into marriage here, <clears throat> first of all, with the wives. <clears throat> he does get to the husbands later, lest we think uh, someone's being picked on. Uh, it's not the case. It's, it's equal. He says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Uh, there have been men who've taken that and thought that all women are supposed to be in subjection to them and uh, didn't like it if a woman didn't have just the right respectful attitude toward them. I think there's a, a certain amount of male chauvinist pig and false pride involved in such an attitude. Uh, but it doesn't say that women are to be in subjection to all men. It says, to your own husbands. That if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conduct of the wives. So very frequently, God would call a woman either ahead of the husband or maybe not call the husband at all. And uh, I, I think I comment on, commented on that not too long ago, whether it was in a Bible study or a sermon, I don't remember. But uh, it seemed to me, after quite a bit of experience with it, back when the church was growing very rapidly in the 60s and 70s, that God would call the women first in a great, vast majority of the time. And I always wondered about that. Why would he call the women first and then the men later on? And I think I hit on the key, finally, to, to understanding that. And that is that if a woman is called first, she has to obey God ahead of her husband and put her, hus her, her God ahead of her husband. And that is a very, very difficult thing for women to do. And in fact, uh, over our experience in the decades with Worldwide, if a man were to get in a sour or bitter or angry attitude or whatever and leave the church, almost invariably the woman would go with. And she would be unable to stand up to her husband when he was wrong. Now, part of that might be her inability to stand against him because she thinks she has to obey her husband. But let's understand that your husband-to-be in the heavens, uh, Christ himself, has to be put far ahead of any human husband. Yes, Peter does say to obey your own husband, but... You have a spiritual husband-to-be who is far, far more important than a human husband. And we need to keep that always in mind, that God comes first. We're to be the bride of Christ. And that is far beyond any physical relationship that ends in death here on, on this planet. Uh, part of the dynamics of that situation, I guess, too 
or that if you're living with somebody day in and day out, they're the main one you talk to, so if one gets in a bad attitude, the other one will probably get in a bad attitude too. Uh, so that's another reason why husband and wife sometimes would go uh, out of the church together. Uh, she wasn't necessarily just not standing up for God against her husband, but maybe they got to thinking the same way because they were uh, conversing and communicating. And that makes it a very difficult situation when you're married to someone and they begin to have a wrong attitude makes it much, much harder to fight than even if you're single or whatever, because we we tend to begin to think like each other, and if one's thinking wrong, it's easy to follow that. But he does say to be subject to your own husbands, but at the same time, we must be sure and put God ahead of any man. Well, that's something that's very, very hard for a woman to do. And then he says that if any obey not the word, they might be won by the conduct of the wives. This is the same issue that Paul actually addressed in 1 Corinthians 7, where he called one mate and not the other. He didn't differentiate there whether it be man or woman that was called. But if the other one wasn't called, God said if they would not allow you to obey God in peace and we're fighting you all the time, there is a danger that they could pull you away from the faith that has been delivered to you in obedience to God and cause you to give up on uh, the commitment and the baptism uh, to be in God's kingdom. So he said, in that case, if they are unbelieving and they're going to give you a constant hassle and try to pull you away from God that that marriage can be broken and the believing mate is not bound. That means they're not still married to. Not bound means not bound, even though some argued with that when Mr. Armstrong made the change. Uh, Mr. Armstrong didn't actually make the change. Paul did. And he said, it isn't me, or it isn't the Lord, it's me making this decision. But God obviously went along with that decision and accepted it and then included it in the Bible. So Paul may have in some ways gone out on a limb there, but he understood that the obligation is first to God and then to mankind. And that even marriage, which God holds sacrosanct and and is against divorce and remarriage, uh, that is one case where, uh, for the sake of conversion in the kingdom of God, God was willing to set aside even marriage in order to be sure that the marriage to Christ was kept intact. So that fits in very well with this, that perhaps if they are at least peaceful and don't fight you, you might win them over by your own good conduct and by your obedience and your willingness, readiness of mind to serve and help and and take care of them in a right way, and not let God's truth take you away from your mate, but actually win them over. And that was the other side of that. It's harder for a woman to come into the church, uh, I mean, harder for, yeah, for a woman to come in if she has to stand up against her husband for the truth. But then it makes it harder for him to come in if he is called later because then he has to accept his wife's religion. And that hurts a man's pride and vanity and ego and and male chauvinism and all the things that make up rednecks and men. Uh, they got to go against that and humble themselves and say, you were right. And uh, so, in either case, you have to put God first. And it makes it harder for the woman if she's called first, and harder on the woman and the man if he's called second. Anyway, he says, you might win them over while they behold your good conduct or behavior coupled with fear. There needs to be a certain fear, even in marriage, because marriage represents something spiritual to come. 
A physical marriage on this earth represents the marriage of Christ to his church. And we need a fear of God that we have a right attitude and serve him and serve one another here. So we should look upon a physical marriage in somewhat the same way, that the attitude we have toward our mate will reflect the attitude we have toward Christ. In other words, the physical things on this earth might appear to us sometimes, well, it's just physical. Well, it is, but it's a type of something much greater. And God wants us to, to live within and conduct ourselves within a marriage according to his ways with a certain amount of fear. I don't mean we need to be scared of each other, but a certain amount of fear, healthy fear, that we're doing it right, that the relationship is what it ought to be. That's what he's talking about. <clears throat> Whose adorning, let it not be that, that outward adorning of plaiting or braiding the hair and wearing gold or putting on of apparel. Uh, he's not saying here that it's wrong to braid or plait the hair or to do different hairstyles. It's not wrong to wear gold. You go back to Ezekiel 16, and Christ adorned his bride with gems and gold and so on. So he is not against the wearing of jewelry or uh, putting on clothes. He, he wants us to actually wear clothes. It's better that way in many, many respects. So if you're going to do away with jewelry and plaiting the hair in this context, you're going to have to do away with clothes as well. I mean, you know, it's all in the same sentence, same context. Uh, what he's trying to say is don't let that be the main driving force behind, by the way our, your, your, your purpose in life shouldn't be just to look beautiful uh, through the use of clothing and jewelry and, and hairstyles. <laughs> It needs to be, as he says after that, let it be the hidden man or woman of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So, sure, we can look nice. We can wear things that look nice. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't let that become the goal and the purpose don't become shallow, in other words, and think that uh, because of the way we physically look, everything else is okay. It's the attitudes and the personality within that is the really important thing, not the way we look on the outside. And our culture today is a really, really good example of something gone astray in that category. Everything is about looks, especially with the women. we got have just the right dress, just the right hair, just the right whatever. Uh, our, our culture and our society is just so full of that, it, it becomes uh, way overdone and even obnoxious because there's no depth. I think that even has can have to do with even physical uh, beauty or lack thereof. Uh, that's something we can't do much about. You know, our nose and our jaw and our chin and our lips are shaped a certain way, and that's just the way it's going to be, unless you're in Hollywood and got a lot of money, a lot of money to get all misshapen and ruined, which a lot of happens to a lot of them. But I, I've seen people, men and women, I'm not just picking on women here, who might be, let's say, with men tall and handsome or whatever or muscled, or in their eyes smart, or whatever it might be. And women the same way with physical beauty, because it is dwelt upon so much in our society that they depend on physical looks to get them by. So they don't develop sometimes proper character and personality traits uh, that are necessary. They just depend on beauty and get by with it, <laughs> you know. But God says it isn't that outward thing. It is the inner which is important to him. And in his sight, that is worth a great price.
far more than how we look on the outside. Now, it is inescapable, unfortunately, in some respects, that <coughs> physical beauty is looked upon too much in our society. And therefore, it encourages us to try to use that uh, rather than developing the interior beauty. So you have to fight against it just like anything else. So he says in verse 5, For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. And he uses the example of Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well, and are not, uh, I've used the, the more modern expression, blown away by this. They can handle this attitude, this approach, uh, the being obedient, being respectful, being loving toward your husband, not cantankerous and, and nagging and, and uh, whatever else women sometimes tend to do, or opposing him at every turn. Uh, Sarah didn't do that. She had an, uh, an obedient spirit to her husband. Our society today looks down upon that. What do you mean, be obedient? <laughs> I'm just as good as he is. Well, you may be just as good as he is, that's true. You're not inferior, really, in any way. But God set it up that way, that the husband was the head of the house from the beginning, and that is his way, and that is what works the best. And it is going to be that way throughout eternity. So if, if we're going to fight God's way here on this earth, what are you going to do suddenly when you're married to Christ? And you're supposed to be obedient to him and serve him and do all those things out of respect to him. You say, well, it'll be easy with him. He's perfect. No, it won't. It isn't easy to do that for any of us. And all of us here are candidates to be the bride of Christ, men and women, you know. So men have to be working on that obedient, respectful attitude toward Christ as well. It's just that in the family, the man is put in Christ's place as the head, and the woman is put in the subservient position. So we need to learn what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God by how we handle our marriage relationship here on the earth. And this is the way God says it is to be. I know it goes against everything that society tells us and teaches us, uh, but it's God's way. And we have to get in line with it. <clears throat> okay, enough on that, girls. Now let's go to the men. Verse 7. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Not pride, not male ego, not uh, running over them. Uh, yes, men generally tend to be physically stronger, bigger, more muscle, stronger than women. And through intimidation and just simple physical prowess can uh, intimidate a woman and hurt her, for that matter. But he says you're not to use that physical power, but you are to dwell with them according to true knowledge. And there's a great deal uh, said in the scriptures about how a man should deal with a woman. And you can go to any of the scriptures about Christ and his church and how he handles the church and learn a great deal about how a man should treat and interact with his wife. So dwell with them according to true knowledge, not just the so-called wisdom of this world, giving honor to the wife. So it isn't a matter of browbeating or making her be in subjection, but to treat her with honor, with respect, as under the weaker vessel. Now, she isn't necessarily dumber. She isn't necessarily weaker emotionally. 
Uh, she, you know, in, in the ways that a man sometimes might measure a weakness. He's talking here about just simply physical strength and size. And you're not to mistreat her because of that. But treat her with honor and realize that she's not as strong as you. And Oh boy, that really makes you a man if you can knock her around, doesn't it? Wow, look at you. Uh, no, you're not supposed to treat her that way. Women can sometimes have a lot more strength in many respects than men do. They can be stronger uh, in handling family situations, children situations. They aren't always, but we, we complement each other, man and woman, if we're right, reacting properly. But you're to treat her as being heirs together of the grace of life. So... There's a togetherness there, and in a spiritual way, you're to look upon her as, to, as being as much an heir of eternal life as you are. Uh, so treat her with the kindness and respect and dignity and honor that Christ gives the church. That's what a man's responsibility toward a woman is. And you get along a whole lot better, too, uh, than if you do it the... Tarzan way, drag her around by the hair. Uh, that isn't that isn't just isn't God's way. Maybe things have evened out some in the church. I don't know, but uh, years and years ago, when we first began to discover these various scriptures about marriage relationships and what God says about them, as opposed to the way the world was doing it, it got really unbalanced in a hurry. And some of you may be old enough to remember that in the experience in the church. Because man, in this culture and society in America, has not necessarily been the head of the house. Uh, I remember from my childhood, long, long ago, Blondie and Dagwood. Then it later became just called Blondie. Uh, but Dagwood was always a doofus always doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing. Blondie was always right. She always had everything organized. And he was made to look like an imbecile. And that's the way that the cartoons, that's just one example, were set up. Is It was to take uh, the dignity, the intelligence of a man away from him and give it to the woman. And our society became very unbalanced that way. So when we began to read these scriptures that said that it isn't to be that way, uh, we told the man to be the head of the house, which is correct, but the teaching of the skills necessary to do that in the proper way weren't given along with it. So a man was told, you're to be the head of the house, and your woman is to be obedient, so get yourself a big stick and make sure she obeys. And that's pretty much the way it was handled. And, and it really got out of line. Uh, you, if you're going to tell a man, you know, roles have been reversed here, you need to get things back in the order God intended it, you better give him the training and the teaching and the guidance and the leading so that he does it with love and respect and honor, not with a club. But the club approach was used, and that's the wrong way to take charge of the house. And there are still a lot of men in our society today, in spite of the imbalance that we have, who still uh, take the caveman approach or the Tarzan approach, if you know what I mean. And uh, there are a lot of women who are oppressed, but then there are a lot of men who are oppressed, too. It just seems like we can't get it right either direction. Uh, but let these words of God sink in, and we'll, we'll try to get it right. So he gives direction to the wife. Then he gives direction to the husband, that their attitudes toward each other be correct. And then he summarizes by putting it all together uh, as brethren. Verse 8, finally, be you all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, 
be full of pity and be courteous. So it starts with husband and wife having those characteristics one to the other. Uh, and then it goes to all of us because we're part of a family. And we're to be the family of God, ultimately. And in fact, he already includes us as family. And what did Paul tell Timothy? He said, treat the members of the church like family, like fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and so on. It is to be a family relationship. Now, the ministry has a very difficult assignment in fulfilling that in a right way. Uh, there was a time in the church when the ministry, in some respects, held themselves above others and wouldn't mix with them in a proper way. And it wasn't like a family relationship. It was like a, a king and subjects is the way a lot of the churches were run. And that is not what Paul told Timothy. On the other hand, if you're friendly and warm with people and joke with them and kid around and this and that, like family members do, uh, then familiarity can breed contempt as well, because they don't see you as a spiritual leader, but just as another human being. So I guess there's a ditch on both sides of the road, but on the other hand, uh, we need to try to live up to what Paul told Timothy, that this is to be a family relationship. And we should be able to interact like brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, and, and so on, with the membership of the church. That would be God's will. And if everybody does it with the character and the right way, uh, it will work. It will work. But if we all come to be of one mind, that's what God tells us to do. Paul wrote the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12, that we all speak the same thing. Uh, we shouldn't be a whole bunch of people here with a whole lot of different ideas. What we should be able to do is if there is a divergence in ideas, is sit down and talk about them and find the answer in God's Word as to what the true answer to the question is, and then we all accept that and be of one mind. We shouldn't all be going different directions. There's a proper way to handle it and an improper way to handle it. The proper way to handle it is sit down and discuss it as Christians and brothers and sisters and come to a logical answer without screaming and fighting and pushing and shoving and bonking people over the head, like families sometimes do. But we should be able to do it with compassion one of another, with love as brethren, and be full of pity for those who have uh, weaknesses or faults or needs or whatever, and give courtesy to each other. Now, those are the characteristics God wants us to have that we need to be working on. And Peter, James, they all keep going through these things the same way. And here again, as I said last night, these are the days of unleavened bread, and it's kind of interesting that we're getting into all this kind of thing that we might not have looked upon ourselves as needing when we examined ourselves before Passover came. But if we stick our nose in God's Word, we find all these things that He tells us we need to be working on that we might not have quite thought about. So, our attitudes and our approach to each other are very, very important. So he says, verse 8, this is the way to be, full of love and compassion and pity and, and uh, friendliness and courteousness, not being thin-skinned, not being offended. In verse 9, then, he tells us how not to be, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. And our first tendency as human beings, if somebody gets on us, is to get right back in their face. Or if they speak evil of us, to speak evil of them. That's what railing, in, that's what railing means, speaking evil or, or discrediting or putting down or whatever. Uh, we're not supposed to return it. What did Christ say? Turn the other cheek. Take it, 
Don't get upset. Don't get angry. Don't be offended. Them's fighting words. <laughs> this this is tough stuff right here. I've said that last night, but it is. This is this is the nitty gritty. This is the hard things. We wear our feelings on our sleeves and on our shoulders, and it's so easy over the slightest social slips or things that might be said to get our nose out of joint or get upset one way or another. God says don't do that. Last night we talked about it quite a bit. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Those are the words of Almighty God. When we, in the day, still having anger and a grudge and an attitude towards somebody, we are breaking God's law. We are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. We are holding something over their head because our feelings are hurt, or we think we were wronged, or whatever it might be. How much was Christ wronged? How much was he punished for things he didn't do? He is our example to follow. We're supposed to be just like him. He means these things. He actually means them. We're supposed to live up to this. We've, we've got a lot of growth here we can do. But instead of getting upset and returning a slap in the face, he says, instead, offer a blessing. If they say something ugly about us, we're supposed to say something nice back. Now there's a tough one. That is totally against everything in our nature, is to say something nice back if we've been... Something been bad said about us. It is not easy. We've all messed it up, every last one of us. Knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. So God says, render blessings for evil doing or evil sayings against us, because we're called to receive the blessings of God. And We've done bad, ugly, nasty things to other people and said things about them. And we expect him to forgive us and bless us. That's what we want from God. So he says, you're called to be blessed by God, so you better bless each other. For he that will love life and see good days, let his, him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. I've kind of gotten in trouble over the last months, year or so, for supposedly telling people they needed to forgive each other and get rid of grudges and so on, and and, uh, and people didn't like that. So I've tried to get away from that, and I go to something like Faith and Hope and uh, James and Peter and John and Suddenly we're right back in the middle of it, <laughs> because this is human. Because any part of the Bible you go to, uh, whether it's Genesis, human relations start out right there being very important. You know, there's a guy back there that killed his brother. Didn't start off too good. And even Adam and Eve, long before that happened, just as soon as they were caught in the garden doing what they weren't supposed to be doing, they started blaming each other and saying evil about each other. Well, the woman, she made me do it. Blamed her right off the bat. Now, where's the love and the compassion and returning good for evil there? See, this, this goes back a long, long way. And it was still a problem in Peter's day, and it's still a problem today. We have to get our relationships right. We have to get our reactions right. Now, here's a, here's a way to uh, perhaps grade ourselves on our spiritual uh, growth. How do we react to evil or wrong or false accusation or true accusation or, or social slights or whatever? Do we act like other human beings? Do we react carnally and 
let's say, normally, like other people do, or do we react like Christ? Never defend ourselves. Always say something good in return. I think we we still have some growing and overcoming to do. Uh, is the sun down yet? Yeah, I guess it is. Uh, we got one more day of unleavened bread to, to put this sin out of our lives. We got 24 hours to work on this before unleavened bread ends. Uh, so let's think deeply about it. You know, sometimes it takes us quite a while to get our attitude under control. There have been times when I've needed to correct someone, let's say, over the years in the church, and maybe they did something to somebody or to me or whatever, and I was in a real snit about it. And sometimes I would make myself wait three whole days before I would call them or approach them in any way to be sure that I was not going about it in anger, but that I was trying to gain them in love. And uh, sometimes I'd wrestle with myself for the whole three days. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't obeying God enough. I wasn't supposed to let the sun go down on my snit or my bad attitude that I deserved. Thank you very much. But God says don't let the sun go down on it. Well, that's not just something I made up. That's... That's his word. So we need to keep, not let those words drop to the ground. We're not to let any of God's God's, uh, words drop to the ground. I was talking with someone just this morning, and he said that he had been listening to a minister in another group. I won't say where. But that this uh, man had been saying, don't worry about the little sins that you do every day. You're going to keep sinning right up until Christ returns. So don't worry about those. Uh, you'll be saved anyway. God's not going to let any... Uh, he'll, he'll not let any be lost. He's going to save us in spite of... Come on! We're supposed to just go ahead and tolerate our sins and not try to overcome and grow? Where does that kind of theology come from? And this is somebody who's a long-time minister in the Church of God that's dispensing that kind of rancid advice. Uh, No. What does he tell us? All seven churches, what does he tell? Overcome, and you'll be granted to sit with me on my throne. I get it. I understand what he's trying to say in a way. In fact, I've said it myself, not more than two or three or four sermons back. That we're not going to be perfect before Christ returns. It's, It's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean we don't work on it every day and try to overcome every day and be as much like Christ as we can every day. You don't just say, oh, well, I'm not going to be perfect anyway, so say la vie, I'll just go on through life and won't worry about it. Well, where does that end? Does that end with a little bit of a bad attitude you might have had yesterday morning and you don't have to worry about it? Because if you start saying, I don't have to worry about my everyday sins, what is an everyday sin? It can be anything, can it? It can be the most awful and egregious sin. Some people sin very, very badly every day. Some have smaller sins, I guess, but all sin kills. If we don't have the blood of Christ, it doesn't matter how big the sin is, uh, we die for it. That's the penalty. So we need to do our very best to expunge any kind of sin every day. And if we fall short, then we pray for mercy and forgiveness. That's all. But boy, don't tell me I can put up with my everyday sins and not have to worry about them. Hallelujah. I'm going to get along without near as much difficulty as I have been. If I'm going to do that, why fight it? Just go along with it. Hey, roll with the flow. Now, that isn't God's way. I'm sorry. There's a minister that's starting to turn Protestant. You know, just believe on the Lord and everything will be fine. No, it isn't that way. It 
well, he says that right here in this next verse, 10. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him hate evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. It's not saying relax and don't worry about it. It's saying seek, pursue, go after, control your tongue, because those are the easiest, simplest everyday sins, aren't they? Little things we say that might not be good or might hurt somebody or might be evil or, or negative. Those are the little everyday sins. But Peter here is saying, hey, don't put up with that. Control your tongue. James said the same thing. He, he spent a lot, put a lot of emphasis on that. Oh, we have to grow and overcome. We have to struggle and fight. And every day should be a fight. I had somebody tell me a while back, well, I now understand the grace of God, and life's just so easy now. I said, I thought, man, alive, are you ever missing the boat? If you think life is easy and you don't have a fight and a struggle every day, you don't know the difference between man and God. And you don't recognize the vast chasm that needs to be fixed, the breach between mankind and God. Did Paul put it that way? He said, I die daily. I have to fight myself into captivity. The things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. He says, I, I have a struggle every day of my life. This is meant to be a struggle. So if it's a struggle, don't be discouraged by that, because that's what this life is all about, struggling against Satan and against human nature. And they will overcome us in a heartbeat if we allow it. Verse 12, For the eyes of the eternal are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the eternal is against them that do evil. Does that sound like we need to put up with sin and not worry about it? God has his eye on the righteous, those who are struggling and trying to do what's right. And he is against those who will do evil. I don't want God against me. I want God for me. So I have a struggle here because my nature is to do evil. That's, that's just me. You know what? That's just you too. That's all of us. So we do have a struggle. But God says if we'll do right, that he will hear our prayers. His, his ears are open to the prayers of the righteous. He will listen to those prayers. But those who are doing evil, they won't listen. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But in if, and it can happen and does happen, you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. That's rarer than suffering for sin's sake. Most of the time, we suffer for things we've done that aren't good. That's what most of our suffering comes from. But if somebody persecutes us or puts us down for something we do that is righteous, that ought to make us happy. It shouldn't make us self-righteous. It should make us happy. But I'm obeying God, and I'm getting in trouble for that. I guess that should make us happy because that's pretty rare. Uh, we, we get in trouble for not obeying God by far more. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. If we're doing what's right, and people persecute us or make us suffer for it, he says, don't worry about that. God will take care of us. He will take care of us. But set aside the eternal God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, people have 
misinterpreted that verse, I think, a little bit uh, over the years. They think that you're supposed to have a, a doctrinal answer for every question. No, you're supposed to have an answer for the reason of your hope. What is your hope? Your hope is eternal life. Your hope is a resurrection. So when you're persecuted, you always have that to draw on. Yeah, you may persecute me for righteousness sake, but I'll be in the kingdom of God in the first resurrection, glorified and made immortal and be the bride of Christ forevermore. That's what can keep you going. Now, it's nice to have an answer for every question somebody might ask you, but that's not what he's driving at here. He's driving at having the hope of the resurrection deep within your heart and mind. And that, then, gives you reason to go on when things look bad. It's because you know what the reward is if you serve God. That's the reason for your hope is the resurrection. What did Paul say? If in this life only we have hope, uh, we're of all men most miserable. It is the hope in the resurrection that makes us joyful. Because we are called to do something that the rest of the world really isn't. We're called to always react and speak as Christ reacts and speaks. And that is a so contrary to human nature that it makes life difficult. It's always a fight to say the right thing at the right time rather than the wrong thing. The world doesn't have to worry about that. They can gossip and be negative and cut each other's throats and stab each other in the back the water cooler or or in families, or whatever, and nobody calls them on the carpet for it. They can just be the way they want to be. And that makes life, in some respects, a lot easier. But we're miserable because we're always in a fight with ourselves. You know, instead of fighting each other, we need to fight ourselves. That's where the real battle is. Having a good conscience, verse 16, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. Well, we saw last night when they're going to be ashamed, and that's when the visitation comes, when Christ visits the seven last plagues on the earth, and they are humbled and every knee is made to bend. Uh, then is when they will begin to look at us with great honor and respect, whereas before we've been evil to them. Verse 17, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. At least if they're going to put us down, let's have them do it because we were righteous, not because we were evil. Don't let them call us hypocrites, in other words. You know, you say this, but you do this. No, let's do what we say we'll do and be righteous, and then if they persecute us, at least we're being persecuted for the right reasons. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He was resurrected. He was given life eternal again, so that we might have the same. By which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The same Spirit of God that he apparently uh, preached to some of the demons, trying to straighten them out. He said, look, I'm going to kill all mankind because of the influence you've had on them. Why don't you straighten up? Did he go to them and give them that opportunity and preach to them? Sounds like it. But they weren't going to hear it. 
So he says, this happened during the days of Noah, and only eight were saved. The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, uh, he's saying something he said earlier that I, that I sort of got on. Uh, we're not saved by the death of Christ. We're only forgiven our sins through his death. But we are offered eternal life through his resurrection, by his life. We don't worship a dead Christ, we worship a living Christ. Now, he had to die that we could be forgiven, but he also has to live that we might be given eternal life. And so, baptism is the type there. Baptism, going under the water, represents death and death only. If you get held under there very long, the bubbles come up and you're dead. That's what it represents. It is the laying on of hands afterward, whereby God begets you with his Holy Spirit, that new life is infused in you. So yes, the sins need to be washed away. And that is, baptism is symbolic of that. But the indwelling of God's Spirit, whereby we grow and learn to obey and serve God and live God's kind of life, is what's important to get us into the kingdom of God even as Christ obeyed completely and never sinned. And he was resurrected and made glorious. And we, by in a good conscience, not sinning, are saved by the resurrection of Christ, by his life. Who has gone into heaven is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. King of kings, Lord of lords, the Lord of hosts, all the titles that have accrued to Christ as a result of his lack of sin and his being willing to take uh, the judgment that came on him that he did not deserve. And now he is resurrected and been given all those crowns and titles. And he tells us if we will serve the living Christ, if we will be obedient and follow his way, he will give us crowns and offices and mansions, uh, we can have the same things Christ has. We'll be God, just like he is. He will always be above us, uh, because he's king of kings and lord of lords. We'll be kings and priests, but he'll always be the supreme king. That's okay with me. <laughs> I, just, you know, I, I don't want to be the supreme king. I want him to be. But I do want the crown of life, and I do want the things that he's promised, eternal life and glory and honor throughout eternity that is offered through his resurrection. So it's dead on time to quit, and we finish that chapter, so I appreciate you coming.